is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mea Culpa Podcast. I hate to report this, but it's possible that the world has gone completely mad. At least this week. Maybe next week will be better. But as of this moment, countries around the world are in a state of upheaval. In Pakistan, 33 million people have been displaced due to flooding. In Russia, 300,000 people are being conscripted and shipped off to fight Putin's war in Ukraine. And in Iran, women are risking their lives and burning their headscarves in protest after the so-called morality police murdered a 22-year-old woman in their custody. Iranians have taken to the street, chanting death to the dictator, and at least 17 people have died in clashes with police. But such is the price of oppression. Protests breaking out at universities across the country, spreading to the streets in cities across Iran. Women are showing displays of defiance against the strict dress code, burning their hijabs while large crowds cheer them on. We should understand this is an act of solidarity against uh, a corrupt, repressive regime that dictates to women what to do with their bodies and how to cover or uncover it. Back here in the United States, former NFL star Brett Favre stole millions of dollars in welfare funds from the poorest county in Mississippi. Newly released text messages reveal that NFL Hall of Famer Brett Favre had much more involvement than once believed in moving millions of federal welfare dollars intended to help low-income families to instead pay for a new volleyball facility where his daughter played. Well, Brett, I bet she's real proud of you now. And as Kevin McCarthy rolls out the GOP's new Commitment to America agenda, He's claiming that when, not if, he becomes Speaker of the House, he'll repeal funding for the proposed 87,000 new IRS agents included in the Inflation Reduction Act. The hiring of those workers was supposed to take place not overnight, over a 10-year period. But no matter, Kevin wants to assure that his wealthy donors now that he's on their side. And as long as he's in charge, they won't have to pay taxes. He's also touting a desire to give parents more leverage over their children's public schools. Now, I take that to mean he wants the culture wars to play out in classrooms all across America. There are many other public education issues concerning parents like myself. The slow creep of critical race theory, diversity, equity, and inclusion, gender identity. Now we have SEL, which is social emotional learning. It's indoctrination disguised as programs like kindness initiatives or anti-bullying programs or diversity projects. These are all Marxist-style programs targeting our children. Whoop-de-fucking-do! Kids are only our future, so I suppose he thinks if we fuck them up early, they won't show up to vote he and his kind out of office. But those kids are coming. Nearly 8 million of them have turned 18 since the previous election. And since the Dobbs decision, new voters are moving towards Democrats in massive numbers. So suck it, Kevin. 
you know, I think the Republicans, as they always do, I think this time they went too far, that this was an election cycle. This is a midterm election that normally, you know, normally they would be going in with an advantage. I actually believe that they're going in with a disadvantage. And young voters, I think, are all they're going to make the difference in this next election cycle. We're at the beginning, I believe, of a new 40 year uh, cycle, political cycle, where you're going to see younger, they're younger voters. They're more informed. Some of them are informed, you know, with with the correct information because of social media platforms. Some of them are getting information that is not correct, but they're more informed, which means they're more engaged. And I think they're going to be more engaged this election cycle. Further evidence that the world has lost its collective minds. It looks like Matt Gates, the MAGA rep from Florida, is not going to be indicted on sex trafficking charges after all. 40-year-old Gates is said to have had a paid sexual arrangement with a 17-year-old girl. But for now, career prosecutors have recommended against charges being filed because several key witnesses have credibility issues, including the 17-year-old girl in question and his former BFF, Joel Greenberg. Joel Greenberg, who Matt Gates reportedly called his wingman, formally pleading guilty to six federal charges, including admitting that he knowingly solicited and paid an underage girl for sex. Greenberg also pledging in court to cooperate in a wide-ranging federal probe, which includes examining whether Congressman Gates had sex with an underage girl as well. Greenberg's lawyer, who previously suggested Gates should be worried about a plea deal, sharing this ominous warning. Does my client have information that could uh, hurt uh, an elected official. I guess this is just, you know, must-see television. You'll just have to wait and see. Greenberg was the former tax collector for the Seminole County who partied with Gates often and allegedly hooked him up with minors. He was also busted for sex trafficking, as well as a series of other crimes, including aggravated identity theft and wire fraud. However, Greenberg struck a plea deal with authorities that doesn't seem to be panning out because, amongst other things, he's a compulsive liar who can't keep his stories straight. If new evidence emerges, Gates may still be charged, but for now, he's off the hook. Yeah, definitely. It is what you can prove. I mean, that's what a court of law is all about. I want to go even before we even got to an investigation stage, which is why would this man take a 17-year-old anywhere? Can we just start? At the genesis, he should not be, you know, taking a 17-year-old anywhere. Legal issues amounting for the Teflon Don, and it would appear that he's just about shit out of luck. Now, not that the MAGA morons and QAnon freak shows will even notice, but for the rest of us, playing along at home and tracking the lawlessness of the former president, rest assured, the end is near. But just for fun, let's do a quick rundown of all the cases he's currently fighting in courtrooms across the country. Last week, New York Attorney General Tish James laid a civil lawsuit at Trump's doorstep that will more than likely shut down the Trump Organization for once and for all. A business that he inherited from his father and bankrupted several times is now the legacy he leaves behind for his children. I mean, good job, Don. Following a comprehensive three-year investigation by my office, including witnesses, interviews with more than 65 witnesses, and review of millions of documents that were submitted by Mr. Trump and others, I am announcing that today we are filing a lawsuit against Donald Trump for violating the law 
as part of his efforts to generate profits for himself, his family, and his company. And next month, the Trump Organization goes on trial with the Manhattan District Attorney's Office for criminal tax fraud. But also expected is a wave of civil suits from hundreds of people seeking to hold the former president responsible for injuries and trauma inflicted upon them during the January 6th insurrection. At the end of the day, the whole country has been traumatized by January 6th. I mean, I'd like to see that lawsuit. One of the hallmarks of the American legal system is that anyone can file a lawsuit for any reason at any time. Appointing a special master in the Morillardo case is proving to be a real pain in the ass for the Donald and his crack team of sleazy lawyers. I mean, first, Judge Deary restored the DOJ's access to the stolen documents. And now, Deary's just knocking down their arguments one at a time. They argue the point. And they stay on point and make sure you stay on point until you're down on your knees apologizing, begging for forgiveness. All right? No problem with that. Totally respect it. But here's the thing. If they're wrong, they go rogue. For example, like Trump's absurd claim about the DOJ, he said on Hannity Wednesday, did they drop anything into those piles of materials taken from Mar-a-Lago? Or did they do it later? No, they did not drop anything into those piles, moron. But Deary called their bluff and has given them until September 30th to put up some real evidence or shut the fuck up about it. Donald Trump just had one of the worst legal days of his entire life, which is saying something. And it comes amidst a set of accelerating threats from local, state, and federal law enforcement. So last night, the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, as we reported, issued a unanimous per curiam ruling against the ex-president, overruling a previous decision widely criticized by a Trump appointed district judge saying that the Department of Justice can resume using the 100 classified documents seized from Trump's home in Florida in their investigation into his handling of the sensitive materials. DOJ has said that this inquiry is related to possible obstruction of justice and Espionage Act violations. The claim that he declassified stolen documents makes zero fucking sense and only serves to make him look weak and crazy. But they floated it to the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals anyway. The court is made up of two Trump-appointed judges and one Obama pick as they sided with the Department of Justice. And went after Trump, saying, and I quote, the declassification argument is a red herring because declassifying an official document would not change its content or render it personal. They also pointed a finger at fangirl Judge Eileen Cannon's illogical rulings saying the court abused its discretion in exercising jurisdiction over the documents. I mean, thank you, God. Finally, some adults in the room. Former President Donald Trump is taking aim at Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis. Her office is over that special grand jury looking into possible interference with Georgia's 2020 election results. The former president issued this statement saying, in part, quote, she is basing her potential claims on trying to find a tiny word or phrase that isn't there during an absolutely perfect phone call. He goes on to call the investigation a witch hunt. Now, Trump is also the target of the ongoing 2020 election fraud case in Fulton County, Georgia. Now, you know that one. Just find me however many votes. The case also implicates Rudy, Lindsey Graham, and at least 15 others. Last week, 
Fulton County DA Fannie Willis told reporters, and I quote, serious crimes have been committed and that she believes some individuals may see jail time. Now, it's going to be months before indictments come down in that case, but Willis said she's likely going to call Trump to testify under oath before a special grand jury. So me personally, I'm fucking looking forward to that. And Fulton County isn't the only place trying to hold Trump accountable for his 2020 fraudulent election schemes. The January 6th committee is gearing back up for more hearings. And they are now sharing evidence with the Department of Justice, who are also actively pursuing Trump and his allies for plotting an attempted coup against the government. So, more good times lay ahead for the man who nearly took down America. Let's pray our court system holds up, that the truth is revealed, and in the end, justice prevails. There's no place out there for graft, or greed, or lies, or compromise with human liberties. And that, if that's what the grown-ups have done with this world that was given to them, then we better get those boys camps started fast and see what the kids can do. And it's not too late. Because this country is bigger than the Taylors, or you, or me, or anything else. And now for the main event. We are proud to welcome back to our show acclaimed author David Enrich. Enrich is the business investigators editor at the New York Times and the number one best-selling author of Dark Towers. He previously was an editor and reporter at the Wall Street Journal. David has won numerous journalism awards, including the 2016 Gerald Loeb Award for feature writing. His first book, The Spider Network, how a math genius and gang of scheming bankers pulled off one of the greatest scams in history. It was shortlisted for the Financial Times Business Book of the Year Award. So follow him on Twitter at David Enrich. And let's go now to that conversation. Okay, so David, first of all, let me congratulate you on your new book, Servants of the Damned, Giant Law Firms, Donald Trump, and the Corruption of Justice. It's, you know, it's startling and amazing. And you may know I have um, a new book coming out too, which seems to be validated by your book, by Jeffrey Berman's book. Mm -hmm. And it really talks about all of the corruption of the Department of Justice. So- Let's do this. Let's start by talking about what tipped you off to the story and about Jones Day in particular. What drew you to the subject matter? Yeah, well, I had been writing about big business and finance for a long time and kept being fascinated by the role of big corporate law firms for playing behind the scenes in all these business scandals. And had been, you know, it's it been interesting to see the way they kind of pulled the levers of power, including by kind of manipulating the media at times. And so that had kind of been lurking in the back of my mind. And then 2020 comes along and Trump obviously is playing all sorts of games, trying to set expectations for a rigged election and warning about the perils of mail-in voting, things like that. And I was really surprised to see that behind some of those claims and behind uh, you know, Trump himself and the Trump campaign itself, was this very big, very prominent, very respectable law firm, Jones Day, which had this history going back to the 1800s in Cleveland. And, you know, at first glance, it's the last institution you would expect to see getting involved with Donald Trump. Uh, so I really started to dig into that and was quite surprised by what I found. And 
it was basically that this kind of proud, old, iconic corporate law firm had taken a very sharp right turn a couple of decades ago and had in recent years really embedded itself in the in conservative politics and including by getting on the Trump bandwagon very early on back in early 2015. Um, I, I went from there. Look, I know Jones Day, they were obviously involved uh, early on in the 2015, especially the 2016, yeah. uh, when Trump ultimately became president. Um, let me ask you, let me ask you this as a follow up, because Jones Day, as you note, fought to undermine Obamacare. Yep. They represented Russian oligarchs, big pharma, big tobacco, and they tried to flip the 2020 elections in at least one state. Now, perhaps the law firm isn't inherently evil, but at some point, something changed and they became, you know, who I suppose they are today. And would you say, you know, that that word would be corrupt? No, I think that would probably be overstating it a little bit. I mean, look, this is a law firm with something like 2,500 lawyers all over the world. And a great many of them are just consummate professionals who are doing their jobs day in and day out. And everyone, in at least all criminal defendants, uh, whether they're people or probably companies too, have a right to robust, zealous legal representation. And I, I think this started off by, you know, a lot of lawyers come out of law school trying to pay off their student loans. And are have kind of a good feeling in their minds about what it means to be a lawyer uh, because everyone deserves representation. And it is gradually, at Jones Day at least, it has morphed into that kind of very admirable sentiment has morphed into something that I think has become a little less admirable, at least in the eyes of a lot of critics of these big law firms. And I should say, by the way, this is not just a Jones Day issue, right? This is Jones Day. I picked Jones Day as the kind of primary topic for this book, not just because of the Trump representation, although that is part of it, but because in a lot of ways it is emblematic of what has happened throughout the legal industry, which is that under the guise of providing uh, representation to clients who are in legal trouble, they have expanded into this whole array of services that have absolutely nothing to do with that kind of constitutional and ethical obligation. I and mean, they're branching into things like not only helping people get elected and invade government investigations, which we've seen with the Trump work, but also in trying to avoid taxes, trying to, as you, you alluded to, trying to help Russian oligarchs uh, move money out of Russia and getting into the kind of Western economies, helping them, uh, you know, evade regulations, things like that. And so none of those things are fall under the umbrella of the services to which anyone would be, you know, even conceivably entitled under the Constitution or the law. And I, so I think this is a big trend that has happened in the legal profession writ large. And the result of it is that the legal system, the justice system in America, has just become incredibly lopsided in favor of big companies and powerful, wealthy institutions and individuals on the one hand, and on the other, really, uh, that's been to the disadvantage of a great many people and small businesses and small law firms that don't have the money and resources to engage in a fight like this. Right. Now, in the book, I think you also tag, obviously, other law firms as well, like Paul Weiss, Skadden Arps, mm -hmm. Baker McKenzie. I've been yelling from the mountaintops for a while now 
that one of the biggest problems that I see in our Department of Justice is the fact that I'm basically parroting um, Judge Jed Rakoff when he talks about the inherent problems that exist in the prosecutor's offices. Mm-hmm. In my specific case, Southern District of New York. And one of the big problems that you have is that they're no longer prosecuting, which is their job, to determine if a law has been broken and to prosecute the case. That's not what they care about anymore. What they care about is their conviction rate. Mm -hmm. Why? The better their conviction rate, and somehow or another, every fucking one of them has like a 98% conviction rate, and they shove that right up your ass when you have a problem. Oh, I have a 98% conviction rate. If you think you'll be part of that 2%, good luck to you. But let me tell you, we're going to throw the book at you. We have... We have all the, you know, it's our ball, it's our ball field, it's our bat, it's our gloves, it's our everything. And you sit there and you're scratching your head and then, you know, you're speaking to your criminal defense attorney. And they're like, well, I'm going to need you to wire me a million dollars by tomorrow. Otherwise, I can't represent you. And your head starts spinning. And the lawyer at the same time is saying that there's no, you know, there's no sure answer. You're like, but I didn't do it. Well, the prosecutor doesn't give a flying fuck. He really doesn't. All he cares about is that conviction rate. Why? Well, in that way, when he's finished with his two, three, four, five years of fucking over people's lives with a 98% you know, um, percent conviction rate, where does he go? Yep. Lowenstein Sandler, yep. Paul Weiss, yep. Scadden, you know, Baker. Uh, in my specific case, they went to McDermott, Will and Emery, yep. Lowenstein Sandler, Paul Weiss, um, you know, one one asshole even ended up over at uh, what should we call it? Um, uh, oh God, one of these hedge funds. Um, mm-hmm. I'm blank. I, I keep blanking on their name, but I, I couldn't. I couldn't believe it. You know, Guggenheim Partners. Yep. I mean, for what? For what? For because money. you shoved a bit because you have a badge and a gun, and you sit there and you turn around and you you put the squeeze on people. That's why Judge Jed Rakoff. I talk about this in my book, Revenge, ad nauseum. Judge Jed Rakoff, who I quote um, in several different parts of the book, one of the ideas he thought is you have to take prosecutors and judges, who are basically one or two floors apart from each other, out of the equation. If somebody is going to do a plea deal, what you need to do is bring in a third-party judge who's completely, you know, unbiased in this case, right? That's assuming you could find that, but you bring in an unbiased judge, to work the plea deal, not basically have some, you know, some other asshole who sits there and at the end of the day, you get screwed, you get thrown under the bus. And that's, I guess, one of the things that you see also, yeah, well, in, you know, in this. I actually kind of see the opposite side of the same coin, I think, which is that your experience and you know the experience of many other people who as individuals have been up against the justice department and uh i think is like one set of experiences but you know what i focus on more is the experience that big powerful companies have in similar situations and you will not be surprised to hear that it's a radically different experience and the reason for that is that they are armed with the they basically unlimited resources, especially compared to the Justice Department. And they can just afford to not only, you know, protract and extend investigations and delay things, but they can also afford and are able to exploit connections that they have. And one of the things I was most startled by uh, involving Jones Day was that, you know, Jones Day, I think it's worth mentioning, had an extraordinary 
record of placing its senior people inside the Trump administration. And that was at the White House, uh, but it was also at the, in the upper echelons of the Justice Department. And so you can see clients of Jones Day, like Walmart is a, is, is a really powerful example of this, I think. Walmart was under criminal investigation by the Justice Department and for uh, its distribute for distributing opioids all over the country with kind of reckless abandon. And uh, so what is and Jones Day gets hired as their defense lawyers. And what do they do? They go to the people that they had had previous Jones Day lawyers who are now at the top of the Justice Department and essentially lobby them and push them to delay or weaken the investigation. And it worked. And so to me, the this speaks your experience and the experience of other people like you on the one hand and the experience of companies like Walmart on the other, it's really, mm-hmm. it's a really powerful juxtaposition because it shows very vividly how lopsided and unbalanced the system of justice is when you have these giant law firms uh, spending huge amounts of money and working their extensive networks of connections inside, you know, in the Trump administration in that case, but I'm sure this is happening in democratic administrations too. It's uh it really, it's not fair. And I think it also really corrodes the perception of an impartial uh, justice system and an impartial judiciary. And that's really, really damaging. But I do want to say, because I spent quite a bit of time with Don McGahn, who was White House uh, counsel. And I have to be honest with you, you know, of course, you know, he's was a Jones Day um, partner, have to be very honest with you. I always found him to be ethical. I always found him to be one of these guys that legitimately would tell Trump no. In fact, a lot of people turn around and say, oh, the reason that you're so angry with Donald is because, you know, he didn't take you to Washington with him. Mm -hmm. And again, something I talk about in the book, it's not true. It's just another lie that somehow got promoted and especially through the right-wing media whether it be fox oan newsmax this was you know one of the sycophants that were surrounding him said oh you know just claim that he's a bitter former employee because you didn't take him in fact if you ask don mcgann he'll tell you donald wanted me to be um directly under mcgann as uh, White as uh, assistant to White House general counsel. Pretty big position, right? That's not what I wanted. I had my son yeah. who was graduating high school, my daughter graduating college, my wife. I lived in D.C. for four years. I didn't want to live there. On top of that, I had other ideas, and I got the exact position that I wanted. There was nothing wrong with being, you know— um, personal attorney to the president of the United States of America. Now, the fact that it happens to be Donald Trump does make it a despicable job. But Don McCann on many occasions, and I and I saw it, um, would turn around and say to, you know, to Donald, can't do this. Yeah. You know, I won't do it. And um, I think there was no great love between the two. I totally agree with that. And I I think that's a really important point. And and just to be 100 percent clear, I'm not right now or in the book, accusing Don McGahn of any ethical lapses. I, I think I, the rap on McGahn... Is and actually, I never said that she did, did Yeah, No, no, I know. <laughs> I just want... I, I, I am trying to be extremely fair here and careful as well. And uh, But look, the rap on McGahn is kind of the opposite. Of that, is that he was an extremely effective... At first, while he was working on the Trump campaign, before he went to the White House, 
he was extremely effective at cementing or giving Trump an injection of credibility and respectability in the mainstream conservative yes. movement, where Trump really lacked that credibility. And McGahn and Jones Day, and it helped him draw up a list of federal judges that he would uh, pick from that Trump later publicly announced, which really, and Mitch McConnell has said that that was the single biggest moment in getting the conservative movement behind the Trump candidacy. And then once in the White House, McGahn was, Trump had basically delegated all of the authority of selecting judicial nominees to McGahn. And McGahn yes. worked with great efficiency and effectiveness to implement that. And he, you know, re completely reconstituted the federal judiciary. And there's nothing unethical about that. People can, uh, you know, disagree about kind of the judicial philosophy he used and the judges he picked and things like that. But there is absolutely no denying that McGahn was enormously successful in changing not just the Supreme Court, but all sorts of lower federal courts as well. And, and those are changes that are I mean, that might be the biggest legacy of the Trump administration. Yes, except for, again, you know, the individuals that they put on both the federal bench and the Supreme Court. I do, though, want to tell you, I was there in Trump's office when the when Donald received a packet and it probably was 15 pages um, of names and it was provided to Donald by the Federalist mm -hmm. Society. And in order to continue to remain involved and supported by the Southern White Christian Coalition, by the evangelical community, and so on, these were the these were the yeah. people that Donald um, that they wanted appointed and put the pressure, the squeeze yeah. on him, on meeting Donald, you know, to put these guys in. So what Trump did is he just handed it over to Don McGahn. It's not as if Donald could tell you right. the name of totally. any single person. It was, it was, the work was done for him. He's a lazy motherfucker. Let me be very clear about that. I mean, I'll never forget there were books that were written that, you know, were his books. And he never read them. He had nothing to do with them. He would say, My, you know, Michael, take this home, you know, and mark it up for me. Then go back to Meredith and speak. Or there was another book called Trump Tower, which was yeah. another one. He was like, read and tell me what you think and make changes. You know, even though it wasn't any of ours, it was a third party journalist. Yeah. The point is, what ends up happening is he gets this packet. He gives it to Don McGahn. And Don McGahn, in this specific case, followed the directions yeah. of the Fuhrer himself, which is you get these people, as many of them as you possibly can, appointed to the federal bench. Yeah. And that's a real problem because many of these people have no qualifications. Just look at what's going on with Judge Eileen Connor. Yeah. No qualification. A moron. A moron. Any first-year law student can tell you that what she did, that her decision in the Mar-a-Lardo yeah. documents and the raid is inaccurate. Yeah, it's certainly a very bizarre uh, ruling that no one seems, to, very few people seem to understand. But let me just go back to the Federalist Society thing. Because the interplay between the Federalist Society and Jones Day is really extensive. And I think, and I don't have any doubt that that 15-page packet did indeed arrive on Trump's desk. But I mean, from... Jones Day and the Federalist Society worked together over a period of many months to draw up this list of judges. I and mean, there were Jones Day lawyers, not just McGahn, others as well, who were spending their time vetting potential judicial nominees, reading all their opinions, doing kind of the background research, the oppo research on them. And so this was a really hand-in-hand -hand operation 
that and McGann, of course, is McGann and many other of the senior most people at Jones Day are all uh, loyal and very proud members of the Federalist Society. And so this is this is not something mm-hmm. that just kind of sprang out of nowhere. This was something that was very deliberate that McGann perceived Trump very early on. I think in early 2015, one of the attractions of working for him was that he had this kind of disdain for the Washington establishment. His message seemed to be resonating with Republican primary voters, but he also was not really burdened with strong views on the major issues of the day. And McGahn was, and McGahn was felt very intensely about moving the country's courts to the right and also dismantling kind of the federal regulatory state. And I think he perceived Trump as basically a little bit of an empty vessel that he could put, he he could use to kind of carry out the agenda that he, McGahn, Mm -hmm. and and his friends and allies at the Federalist Society really valued. And so I I think it was a very uh, kind of symbiotic relationship that carried on for years. And again, and as, as you've said, this is something that, I mean, these judges we are seeing on a very regular basis, their decisions and their, uh, their philosophies playing out in a very real way, not just with Trump investigations, but like a whole broad swath of like the American economy and American society and American politics. And that's going to keep happening for like a generation or more to come, I think. You know, it wasn't just Don McGahn that as the FBI agents that I've had on the show, uh, you know, like a Malcolm Nance characterized Donald as a useful idiot. McGahn saw him exactly the same way, as did the Federalist Society, as did the evangelical community. They realized he's a fucking buffoon, but he's a buffoon that they could take advantage of. All the evangelicals wanted is the overturning of Roe v. Wade. And so they were willing to back um, Donald as opposed to, for example, say Hillary, because they knew that Roe v. Wade would never get passed and that the Supreme Court nominees of the Federalist Society wouldn't have a chance of being nominated by someone like Hillary or by Joe Biden and so on. And so they went with, you know, they held their nose and then they went for it. And they went for it and they overturned 50 years. But the part that I found stunning, which is, you know, revealed in your, you know, in your book, is how much money Jones Day received from this, as you referred to it, this symbiotic relationship. Yep. It is not symbiotic. This was, this was a cash cow. I mean, you know, they made just shy of $20 million dollars. You know, yeah. that's real that's real money from just, you know, the Trump organ well, I shouldn't say Trump organization, because he never yeah. would pay that money anyway. I'm talking about from whether it's the campaign or whether it was their work that they did on his behalf when he was president, because that's other people's money. Yeah. Which he's not quick to part with either, but that definitely was as you described him, the um golden ticket. Yeah, and I think I mean, the twenty million or whatever it was that they received from the Trump campaign, and that is a lot of money. It's actually in the grand scheme, I mean Jones Day is a is a law firm that makes something like two billion dollars a year, billion with a B in revenue every year. So it's to me the more valuable thing than that cash is the fact that they were able to parlay their access to Trump into mm-hmm. really lucrative uh, other kind of client services they could provide. I mean, I mentioned Walmart earlier and the services they provided Walmart, which is a, obviously an enormous company. I have no idea how much Jones Day received in legal fees for that work, but I bet it was more than the $20 million they received from the Trump campaign. And part of the reason, a big part of the reason they were as effective, Jones Day was as effective as it was, is because it was able to tap into this network of alumni 
that they had in the upper echelons of the Trump administration. And that simply would not have happened was it not for the campaign work that uh, sure. that they were doing. And and I think there are probably other kind of comparable situations out there, other, like Walmart, that just haven't emerged in public yet. And so I, there's no... It, the relationship with Trump has and completely changed the character and reputation and prospects of a firm that until five or six years ago was really fly and for the most part flying pretty much below the public radar. And obviously that is no longer the case. Yeah. I mean, look, of course they were the go-to, um, you know, law firm, especially during the Republican administration, the Trump administration, you have the white house general counsel yep. who's, you know, who was a long time partner at this firm. So yeah, if they're calling him up and saying, hey, look, um, you know, we're going to represent um, Walmart uh, and so on. Yeah, just, um, yeah, you may need to whisper in your guy's ear and so on. I mean, that's, that's just the corruption that goes on inside of, um, of Washington that nobody really wants to talk about, but we all know exists. And that's something that Donald exploited as well, knowing that politicians yeah. and the lawyers and the whole swamp, as everybody calls it, you know, um, this is the way that they behave. The only difference is Trump's pledge to the American yeah. people during the campaign was that He's going to drain the swamp. In fact, he didn't drain it. He expanded it. You know why? Because he's a great builder. I'm a great builder. I built a bigger and a better swamp than anybody. All right. So, all right. Let me just move on then, because let me just stay, you know, um, back into um, into Don McGahn, because I just want to touch on the point of the Supreme Court, because obviously Don McGahn, who was in the shadows uh, as Trump was going down, he kind of comes off like this puppet master during his time in the administration. Obviously, we know that he was the guy who personally vetted Gorsuch. Yep. He personally vet, vetted uh, Amy Coney Barrett, as well as Brett Kavanaugh for the Supreme Court. Do me a favor, explain, like, who is Don McGahn? Yeah. Um, and, you know, while we know that he's was with Jones Day and then, you know, the White House. Who is he? I mean, where, where does he come from? Yep. What information did you glean from your investigation into the book? He's a really fascinating, unusual character. I mean, this is he's someone who grew up in the Atlantic City area in New Jersey. And his family, his extended family anyway, was actually kind of Democratic royalty. They were part of the Democratic Party in New Jersey in those days. Was was kind of a political machine. And I don't mean that in a good way. And so McGann's extended family was part of that machine. McGann, uh, his uncle, was had been a long time, very kind of loyal lawyer to Trump, of all people, representing Trump as he was building or trying to build his Atlantic City uh, casino business. And and there was a, a bar, I believe in the Taj in Atlantic City, that was named Patty's Saloon. And Patty was... Patty McGahn, Don's uncle. Uh, and so the relationship, so McGahn, though, was not, his immediate family was not part of this Democratic machine. And they were Republicans, or at least not Democrats. And McGahn had a reputation as being someone who was always, not like on the wrong, grew up on the wrong side of the tracks, that's probably overstating it, but was kind of always on the outside looking in. So yeah, he played football, he played, I think, uh, baseball, but he was never part of like the in-group, from what I've heard. And and that was kind of a pattern that kept playing out over his uh, as, as a young man and as a grown up 
Um, I mean, he went to a law school that was kind of a second tier law school. I think that's maybe a little disrespectful, but it was. He did, certainly didn't go to an Ivy League law school. He had a bit of a chip on his shoulder, and he. This is he. Uh, he's a successful musician. He grew his hair long. He played. He had a, a a cover band that would play gigs around, kind of throughout the Mid Atlantic region. Uh, he would dress up in like you know bright orange like spandex to go on stage. And so he, this is someone who was not. You would not think of this person as a kind of hardline ideologue, and yet that is what he had become. And I think he was radicalized, like a lot of other Republicans were. Uh, by the experience of watching the Bork Supreme Court confirmation hearings, which I think a lot of conservatives, I know a lot of conservatives, viewed as just a respected federal judge getting completely railroaded by terrible Democrats. And so McGahn, by the time he was entering the workforce after law school, was a very, uh, he really thought that the liberal uh, establishment was out of control and he wanted to fight against that. And he he became a lawyer at the law firm Patton Boggs, which is a big DC kind of powerhouse. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he met I was there. Oh okay. mm-hmm. so he met him and he met there a guy named Ben Ginsburg, who was one of the most prominent Republican election lawyers in the country. Ben Ginsburg took McGann under his wing. And that was kind of the launch pad for McGahn's career. And he, in the George W. Bush administration, he was, McGahn was appointed to the Federal Election Commission, and he spent his time there working really hard to kind of water down campaign finance regulations and really just bog down the agency uh, and slow decision-making down. Uh, He emerged from that as kind of a, a hero on the right, especially to people like Mitch McConnell, who was a fierce opponent of campaign spending restrictions. And it went, he went back to Patton Boggs at that point, and Patton Boggs is entering this kind of financial death spiral at that point. So he and Ben Ginsburg and a bunch of other Patton Boggs election lawyers, all of them Republicans, went looking for a new home. And it just so happened that Jones Day, this is around 2013, 2014, Jones Day at that point, and you kind of alluded to this earlier, had had taken a pretty hard right turn. They just they were just coming off uh, kind of leading the legal assault on Obamacare. And they were they were run by a guy named Steve Brogan, who was very conservative. Uh, he was, Brogan was surrounded by a bunch of other very conservative men. And Jones Day at that point didn't have a political law practice. They didn't have an election practice. And so Jones Day decided to hire Ginsburg, McGahn, and their colleagues, brought them over to start a new practice devoted to helping Republicans win office. That was toward the end of 2014 just as the kind of shadow campaign for the 2016 uh, Republican presidential nomination was getting underway. And so they, McGahn and Ginsburg, took on as clients a number, a small number of Republican presidential hopefuls. I mean, Chris Christie, uh, uh, Rick Perry, um, Scott Walker, and then along came Trump. And they were, McGahn was introduced to Trump by, by the folks at Citizens United, which is a big group that had fought campaign finance restrictions and who uh, the leader of that, Dave Bossie, was had been close to McGahn. And so Bossie introduced McGahn to Trump. They hit it off and the rest is history. Yeah, well, it wasn't just, believe it or not, it wasn't just um, Dave Bossie, though. He is the one that recommended him. But Cleta Mitchell was involved hmm. in that um, in that decision as well. Because I believe that Don McGahn had um, 
quite extensive knowledge in the Federal Election Committee, uh, the yep. commission, the FEC. Yep. And going back to 2011, you may remember, um, it was kind of a stunt. Uh, I took Trump 727 to Iowa. And, you know, obviously there was advance notice that I was coming. I came by myself in Trump 727. I come off, there's a whole slew of reporters waiting for me on the tarmac. And I had all sorts of, <laughs> I had all sorts of uh, meetings set up to meet with the, uh, the chair heads, you know, and Mr. Cohen, Mr. Cohen, you know, what are you doing here? So I said, you know, I came to learn about the first, you know, in-state caucus and so on as Trump is, you know, contemplating, um, you know, a possible run and so on. Well, then they asked me, you know, why did you take his 727? And I responded because he wouldn't let me use the 757. You know, and that, of course, became a, you know, a big thing. But, you know, um, we ended up having a problem. Right. Um, and, you know, uh, Cleta Mitchell, who I think at the time was with Foley Lardner, um, you know, she went ahead and she handled it. But she obviously she knew Don McGahn, I believe, quite well. Yep. And when Bossy recommended and um, somehow or another, um, Cleta became involved and said, what do you think? Oh, he's a fabulous lawyer. He would be great. And he was running the campaign, you know, as, um, you know, as a lawyer, which there's a lot of problems. But I will tell you this. I give Don McGahn a lot of credit. He did what so many people could not do and to this day still refuse to do. And that's to acknowledge that Trump's a fucking moron, that everybody that's around him, myself included, gets thrown under the bus. He's a guy who doesn't care about anyone. He only cares about himself. And so, you know, good for Don McGahn when he, um, you know, I believe um, resigned sometime in what, uh, like 2019. Yeah, that's he right after Kavanaugh got confirmed, so the end of 2018. Yeah, at the end of 2018, then he turned around and he said, I just can't, um, I can't do this, you know, anymore. It's too, Donald is toxic. So as I'm sure he wanted, I forget what it was. What did he want McGahn to do? It was something Well, he wanted really, to fire him. He wanted to fire Mueller. Was the the right the thing that really and and McGann, you're right, I and mean, McGann was very I think alarmed about the fact that he McGann was increasingly worried that he would be in legal peril of his own, and that obviously I mean you know this better than anyone as a lawyer that is the last place you want to find yourself right and I mean uh, look look at all the people look at all the people right now yeah, David one hundred percent you know whose whose lives Donald fucked forget mine right I'm 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 now you know exacting my revenge but you have Rudy Colludi Giuliani yep. who's you know in deep shit then you have uh this girl uh Bob uh what, yep. whatever her yeah, first name is um yeah, Christina Bob. Uh, you know, you have um, Eastman. You have, you know, uh, I think now Alina Haba. There was something that just came out about her, about making racist comments, and she just settled. And the reason why people go after her, especially in that case, is because of her close proximity to Trump. And, you know, Otherwise, would it have happened? Maybe, but it wouldn't certainly have been something that made the news. But then you can add on dozens more of lawyers that are right now. You know, that's why they keep saying someone's going printing a hat. You know, MAGA, make attorneys, get attorneys. I was, I was about right. to say that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
you know, and it's, I hate to say it, but it happens to be true and so on. So look, on top of that, um, you, it, was it so? McGann graduated, if I'm not mistaken, from Notre Dame, right? Uh, he went. He went to his law school was Widener Law School, um, which Widener, is in uh, right. it's in and it's in Pennsylvania somewhere, not Philadelphia, but it's it's not super high. It's not a high profile law school. I'm sure it's. I a didn't go to a high. I didn't go to a high profile law school either. I didn't go to any law school. So. I wore it. I'll be honest with you. I wore I wore it as a badge of honor. Nothing made me happier than sitting in a room with a bunch of the Ivy Leaguers who really are very um, self laudatory. Where they just you know they just tell you how how great they are, thinking you're going to be impressed, yeah. and, and then you end up just beating them up because you think differently than they do, right? And that well, look, they that take is the certainly whole- a better test. You know, they have better test scores, but at the end of the day, it really has nothing to do with accomplishing the goal. But I, the reason yeah, I bring I that up say that is a disparaging with, remark, by the way. It's just, it is something that McGann, too, wears as a badge of honor, and that, that's, and you know, to his credit. Yeah. So, you know, I also know that Jones Day and McGann represented the Catholic Church. And at one point in time, you know, as their client, they were successful in helping to sidestep um, the liability for, um, you know, abusive priests. Yeah. And so do you think any of that had anything to do with, um, you know, his fervent desire to reshape the Supreme Court and their opinions? You think there was something behind that as well? No, I don't think I don't really think so. I mean, I, look, there's, uh, you know, coincidentally or not, there are the, the people at the top of Jones Day, including McGahn, including Steve Brogan, and Noel Francisco, who's the Trump administration solicitor general, men like that, and they're all kind of, they're all very conservative. They're all quite Catholic, and but I, I don't I don't think we should draw. I don't. Think there's a whole lot more to say about that than that they, you know, they have very strong uh, beliefs about things like abortion and the role of religion in public life, and they got involved. In the case, the Supreme Court case uh, that was decided, um, what was it? Uh, where the high school football coach was praying on the fifty-yard line of the games, and I, I, so I, they've taken they've taken a pretty aggressive stance, as I think, on issues of separation of church and state, or as they would put it, kind of religious freedom issues. And it, I guess it's hard to separate that from their own religious beliefs, I think they would argue that it has nothing to do with their own personal beliefs about religion. It's about, they view it as, you know, a constitutional issue that they think people are entitled to exercise their religion freely. But I mean, there is these, a lot of these people, both at Jones Day and on the court, and these, they operate in and run in kind of similar circles. And not only all in the Federalist Society, but I mean, I came across a, a really fat, what to me was a really fascinating telling anecdote that the day after Roe v. Wade was overturned in uh, June, Amy Coney Barrett went up to New York to attend a 50th birthday party for someone she'd known for a long time. And the party was hosted at the kind of mansion owned by a one of Jones Day's most senior lawyers. And so Amy Coney Barrett is there. A bunch of Jones Day partners are there. They're all mingling. And one of the people Amy Coney Barrett was spotted talking to uh, was Noel Francisco, who was the you know longtime mm-hmm. Jones Day partner and the Trump administration mm-hmm. solicitor general, 
And at that, and, and Francisco, in his role as Don't Say Now, oversees a team of lawyers who argue cases before the Supreme Court. And at that very moment that Amy Coney Barrett is up there at this party talking with uh, Francisco, uh, Don't Say had a ca- an active case before the Supreme Court that uh, about a week later, the court with Barrett, with Justice Barrett in the majority, would decide in favor of Jones Day's client. And it, I don't think there's any kind of causal connection between her attendance at a party and the court's decision. I don't think there's that that would be the case. But I do think mm-hmm. it is a real, it really shows the overlapping social and professional circles that these people have and the effectiveness with which Jones Day has managed to get its view, which is not a majority view in this country, to really to get that heavily represented in the highest courts in the country and to have a huge impact on the law of the land. Well, then let me let me you know post something to you, right? Since you just brought it up. So Jones Day, they have a lot of these corporate clients. They have, you know, massive clients. I mean, yep. whether it's Walmart, the Catholic Church for God's sakes, and as you just stated that they have business before the federal government and the Supreme yep. Court. Is it fair for us? Because I, again, I believe, probably in my, I don't know, let's see, if, let's see if you and I are on the same, you know, the same wavelength on this one. I truly believe, and I think we should all assume that all lawyers and judges that Jones Day helped, you know, to get into their positions will favor Jones Day, which to me is a form of corruption. My biggest fear is. Th- these federal court judges have lifetime appointments yeah. like I like this judge Connor. Yeah, How do we get rid of these criminals dressed up like various members of the judicial system? What are we supposed to do? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Uh, first of all, I'm not, I don't entirely share the view that you just saw, just to be clear, but I think the thing that's interesting to me is that let's say that they're, all the judges that Joan, once in future Jones Day's lawyers got onto all the courts. Let's say that when Jones Day brings cases before them, they are, are completely impartial, as they should be, right? Just stipulate that for a second. I don't know if that's tr- that'll be true, but let's just act like that's true. Even so, there is still a real big perception problem, I think. And the courts in this country, like so many other institutions, are facing crises of legitimacy because they're perceived, rightly and wrongly, I think at different times, as kind of... as uh, appendages of the political parties that help them get power. And that is just, that's really, really bad. And it's really damaging to our government and the faith that the American people have in the government. And I think having a single law firm that wields such enormous power, not only in a particular administration, but now having helped place all these judges on the federal bench across all over the country, I think there is a real risk that that poses, if nothing else, a real kind of perception problem that adds to this notion that the judiciary mm-hmm. is not as independent as Im- and as impartial as you would want it to be. And I just, I think that's a really sad day for American democracy. I totally, look, let me say I agree with you, right? Which is that not all judges that are appointed are corrupt and they're not um, favoring the party that put them into power. We've actually seen that with some of the cases that Trump brought. I mean, he's 0 for 16, right? And so clearly, but you bring up the better point, which is, 
okay, it's not all of them. But even if 1%, it changes the perception of American jurisprudence. It changes the perception that, look, like what I did with, with my lawyer, Petrillo. The guy was the head of the criminal division for the Southern District of New York. That's the reason I took him, yeah. right? I didn't take him for any other reason other than the perception that he had relationships yeah. there, and we could find out what the hell they were looking for. Yeah. In fact, not only did they not tell him, when they ultimately told him on a Friday night, 5.30 p.m., I had till Monday to come in and plead guilty before Judge Pauly, William H. Pauly III, or an 80-page indictment was going out that was going to include my wife. So, yeah, I do believe that Pauly was part of the corrupt system. I absolutely do, and I write about it in this book, you know, that's coming out. So that's the problem. If the perception is one way, right, and it goes that way, how could you not, how could you not just put one and one together and say, look, this has to be it because the charges that were levied against me were just inaccurate other than the Stormy Daniels payment, and the judge knew it. And that's the part that angers me the most. It's really why I wrote Revenge, because I don't ever want to see what happened to me. The uh, corrupt and immoral, orange-crusted Mandarin fucking Mussolini goes ahead, right? Weaponizes the Justice Department with this scumbag Bill Barr, and they violate a U.S. citizen's constitutional rights, including imprisonment. And getting away with it. I don't ever want to see that happen to anyone else ever again. Listen, I'm finished. I did my time. Now I'm just getting rid of, um, what do you call it, supervised release, which is very little. um, But I still want it gone. My point is, this never should have happened. And what it does is it erodes our confidence in the Justice Department. When someone like my father, who's a Holocaust survivor, came to this country, loves this country, probably more than natural-born citizens because he fought to be here, survived atrocities to be here. When my father turns around and says something to me like, you know, the United States is not what it used to be. We may be a country of laws, but there's no justice. That breaks my heart. And that was really what incentivized me to put in the work to do this second book because nobody should ever feel that way it's wrong and it's not what our constitution and our democracy is predicated on but then let me ask you this because further we now you know know just how corrupt the process was to get supreme court justices on the bench can this information be used to force them out to somehow you know reshape the court back into a legitimate institution that's predicated on fair play and the rule of law? I mean, I don't think so. I don't. And the, to me, what happened with the you know, installation of all these conservative justices on the Supreme Court, I wouldn't describe it as corrupt. I would just describe it as the fruits of a very well-organized, well-funded, you know, right-wing machine with Jones Day and Largeford at the helm and Federalist Society too. And it, so I think it is just as another sign of the ways in which well-connected lawyers and law firms like Jones Day, but not, not limited to them, 
are playing this really disproportionate role in uh, in not only helping kind of litigate the law, but also in in some ways helping create the law. And so I don't think there's anything you know ethically or legally wrong with the way they did it. I, in fact, I think that it, I think it was a, the kind of the amazing thing was the degree to which it was happening out in the open, and it, you know everyone could see the number of people that Jones Day had in the White House Counsel's Office. It wasn't just McGahn, right? McGahn brought in probably eight or 10 other lawyers from Jones Day into the White House Counsel's Office. And one of the huge, the big jobs they had was judge selection. Everyone that McGahn had, not just from Jones Day, but from elsewhere in the White House Counsel's Office with him was a Federalist Society member. And it is, this is out in the open and and you can see it, you can see it happening in real time. And I, I think one of the things I've tried to do in my book is explain how it is that we got to a place where law firms and lawyers who are, you know, we hold up in this kind of hallowed uh, ground as officers of the court and public spirited have gotten into a place where they are doing things that are so overtly political and so overtly, they're, they're looking out, they're trying to use the law as a weapon to exploit, to serve often their own political interests. And I, I just think that's a, it's a really Danger. remarkable trend. It's dangerous. Yeah. It's, it's, it's dangerous. So, look, that was a headline, but it also poses a really good question. The law firm, Jones Day, was obviously extremely crucial to Trump's presidency. How much responsibility do you think that the firm bears, you know, for his legacy? I mean, considering that in four years' time in which Jones Day were pulling the strings— the United States almost succumbed to a political coup. Now, their office is not too far and from the roof over there, from their windows. You could actually see the coup going on. I mean, surely Jones Day must bear some responsibility for some of it. Yeah. I mean, do you I, not agree with that? No, I do agree with you. I mean, I think I think it's a little bit difficult to parse where you draw those lines. But yeah, I mean, first of all, I think that everybody who helped Trump get elected and then helped uh, keep him in office and advised him over the years as president bears a certain amount of responsibility for what transpired on January 6th and afterwards. And there's, this is not something that was unanticipatable. You know, I mean, there is a lot of warning signs about this and Jones day in particular, and through 2020, some of its senior partners had been warning other people within the firm about the dangers of Trump's escalating and completely unfounded rhetoric about the dangers of a tainted election and things like that. And this is not something that snuck up on Jonesy. They saw this coming and they were warned about it over and over again. And they chose not to really do anything about it. And look, I mean, they, Jonesy, Jonesy was not one of the law firms that was uh, filing these kind of ridiculous, unhinged lawsuits like Sidney Powell is doing after the election. But they were in Pennsylvania, which was, you know, probably the key battleground state in the 2020 election. They were involved in litigation that where they were seeking, essentially, to make it harder for mail-in ballots to count. And obviously, and our memories fade fast, but mail-in ballots during the pandemic were absolutely pivotal. And everyone kind of knew, including Trump, that they were going to be skewing heavily Democratic and so Jones Day, on behalf of the Republican Party, was going to court over and over again to try to make it harder for those ballots to count. And there's, you know, as many Jones Day lawyers themselves put it, as they were just furious with their firm for the what they were doing, 
This was these were actions that seemed designed to make it harder for votes to count. And that is obviously antithetical to what you think of when you think of a democracy. And I think it's I don't think that litigation in Pennsylvania is by any means what caused January 6th. But it's the same type, in some ways, the same type of activity that where you're just seeking a partisan edge at all costs. And it's you can obviously draw a pretty straight line, I think, between all the election challenges that took place and what Mm -hmm. happened on January 6th and all the rhetoric that Trump and his allies were using about the dangers of voter fraud and illegitimate election to January 6th. And Jones Day, I think, bears, like many others, bears a certain amount of responsibility for that. Yeah. So, you know, just to draw a little bit of a contrast, right? Not everybody that was involved in, you know, the 2016 campaign bears a responsibility. I want to be really clear, and I talk about this a lot, uh, whether it's on television, the journalists that call me and so on. The Donald Trump that we see now is not the Donald Trump that you would have seen 2016 and before. Yes, he was an asshole. Yes, he would make racist, sexist, misogynist type of, you know, comments. That's absolutely true. But Donald Trump, once he tasted power, and that started when he became president-elect, that is not the same Donald Trump. He became the worst version of himself imaginable. And it really did start more, not even so much when he was president-elect, but rather when he sat um, behind, you know, the... um, what do you call it? The Lincoln desk. Um, He believed himself to be a dictator and he believed to be the king and anything he wanted to do, he was permitted. And that's what the people around him allowed him to do. And they didn't really care because again, they all thought they were puppet masters and that they were going to effectuate some benefit for themselves. So far, the only one that seems to have done that uh, and not gotten themselves into trouble, and I still believe him to be the mole inside is Kushner. You know, it makes no sense. I mean, he's fucking raking it in. He was the secretary of everything. He's the guy that was selling pardons and shit. You know, I mean, I don't care what anybody says. You know, it just doesn't make any sense. But he's not the same louse that he was previously. He was always an asshole. But this is on a whole different level. He was an asshole in this myopic real estate world, you know, yeah. not on the on the on the worldwide stage. So, so, maybe, so let me ask you. Th- well, go ahead. Go ahead. No, you, you go ahead. I was just going to say, so maybe I am. I mean, I'm not even. It's fine. Like there's at, at the very least anyone involved in the 2020 election when it became I think when it very quickly and early on became clear that the rhetoric Trump was using was not only false, but it was also in some cases dangerous. I think bears mm-hmm. some responsibility. And I think you can maybe reasonable people can disagree about yes. the the culpability of earlier stuff. Yeah, totally. I, and I agree with you on that too. Listen, I was responsible for what I did. I took I took my fucking lumps and you know, moving on to make sure it doesn't ever happen again. But look, Jones Day is still at it. They recently helped to kill the Biden administration's moratorium on evictions during the pandemic. And then they curbed the government's power to regulate emissions from carbon burning power plants. What can the Biden administration do to protect themselves from these predatory law firms and others just like the Jones days? I mean, I just think we're entering an era where there is a kind of supercharged 
Republican, uh, supercharged, well-funded Republican operation to use the courts, which have been reconstituted to a large degree, to use them as uh, weapons in these kind of long-running ideological battles. And we're seeing that, and Jones State has a, continues to have a very active practice bringing cases kind of opportunistically before the federal courts that often align with the leaders of the law firm's political uh, views. And, and we saw that, as you mentioned, the EPA case, the eviction moratorium case, but you also see it elsewhere. And there's former Jones Day lawyers who have been, who were among those who were replaced on the federal courts. And the, the young judge in Tampa, Florida, who overturned the Biden administration's mask mandate for planes, that was someone who had just recently, she had been on, at Jones Day and it was tapped to join or to, to be nominated to the federal courts, despite having what the American Bar Association regarded as a record that left her unqualified. And, you know, you've got Ron DeSantis as chief of staff in Florida is a Jones Day alum. It's like there's this is it's the Jones Day diaspora is spreading. And I don't I don't really know. I, I just think they are a, a powerful force. And they're if there's a Republican in the White House in 2024, I think it's very likely that that administration, too, will be loaded with uh, once in future John Saylor's. So then let me ask you this, because it's not just law firms. Um, after you so brilliantly wrote about the criminality of Deutsche Bank in a book that I read while I was uh, in Otisville, it was one of the 97 uh, that I read while I was there. It's called Dark Towers. Did Deutsche Bank suffer any repercussions or have they just gone on with business as usual? I think they've suffered reputational repercussions, if nothing else. And I think they and one of the differences. And so Dark Towers is about Deutsche Bank. Servants of the Damned is about largely about Jones Day. And I think one of the differences between those two operations is that uh, Deutsche Bank, I think, was very chastened, not by my book necessarily, but by just the reputational stain that it had suffered as a result of some of the work it had done, not just for Trump, but for a lot of others as well, and Jeffrey Epstein, among others, for example. And Jones Day seems much less chastened from what I can tell. I and mean, I think they, were, they, they view a lot of the attacks on the work that they've done, not only for Trump, but for uh, like powerful companies as a badge of honor. And it, so, I mean, I don't know. I, I have to admit that at this point that the law firm has I, I do not have a whole lot of access to people at in a in decision making capacities inside Jones Day right now, so it's hard for me to uh, I don't have a, a great read on their current thinking. But um, and Deut whereas Deutsche Bank I think really tried to reform itself, I have not seen anything to suggest that Jones Day is interested in changing its ways. And I think that their view inside the firm is that they shouldn't change their ways. That what they are doing honorable. Uh, important work, and right. why would everyone's entitled to the best defense that money can buy. Yeah, exactly. I guess that's the I guess that's the adage that they live by, regardless yeah. of what the issue is. Yeah, and of course, the whole the big hole with that argument is that we're not talking about criminal defense work for the most part. We're, which and that they're right that everyone deserves a robust legal defense. We're not even talking about robust civil defenses. We're talking largely about kind of what I would classify as like extrajudicial, outs certainly outside the courtroom work, whether it's, you know, picking federal judges and helping elect Republicans or helping companies 
you know, figure out ways to avoid taxes or protect their protect their drugs like OxyContin or things like that. So it's uh, you can agree that everyone deserves a robust uh, criminal or even civil defense and still not think that there's a place for big law firms to automatically be doing a lot of work, a lot of the work that they are currently doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So look, David, as the hour comes to a very quick end, I have one last question for you. Knowing all that you do, how do you see it going for Trump currently? I mean, he's got legal issues all over the yep. fucking country and not so many lawyers anymore. Yep. I mean, has Jones Day completely abandoned Trump now? And because Trump knows where all of the, we'll call them Jones Day bodies are buried, I hate that sentence, but I have to use it for the purpose of this question. Will the Department of Justice ever be able to hold him accountable? I mean, I don't know the answer to that question any better than you do. Like, And I've been among the swarm of journalists and pundits who over the years have thought, oh, this time Trump's really in for it. And I've been wrong every time. And uh, so I would not hazard to guess what is about to happen. I mean, Jonesy does or is at least still continuing to get paid uh, legal fees by some of Trump's campaign committees and political action committees, things like that. Uh, I think one of the big questions is if he were to seek reelection or seek election in 2024, will Jones Day agree to represent his campaign? And I think that will probably be the clearest test of the degree to which the firm is trying to kind of cut ties or if they are eager to get right back on the bandwagon. Yeah, I'm not sure that they would cut ties with him. You know, yeah. it's, um, it's, yeah, I don't know. We'll see. For some lawyer, it's um, big bonus come, you know, December 31. Uh, obviously, campaigns should be permitted. It's just that yeah. he's such a despicable human being. We know, we know that he was involved in the January 6th insurrection. We know that he stole documents, you know, from the White House. We know that he lied and made claims. That's, you know, that's another lawyer, you know, that's in trouble as well. The one who signed that affidavit, um, you know, we know all of these things. Should they turn around and say that we don't want to represent him? And then if in fact that it's not them, their feeling may be, well, then somebody else yeah, will do. I know it. that's exactly right? right. So then, why should so why shouldn't be us? You know, I I I believe everyone, whether it's the businesses of the world, whether it's the you know the banks, whether it's the law firms, it's all including our politicians. Many of them, they're all profit motivated, and that's the big problem. You know, I, there's another book that I read while I was there, Dark Money. It's a real problem. You know, the dark money that comes into the campaigns to presidential, you know, uh, inaugural committees. You know, that's another case that's going on right now, too. The one with Tom Barrick involved Mm -hmm. in it. Um, You know, that Stephanie uh, Winston Wolkoff ended up bringing to the forefront. It's a real problem because this dark money, the intent. There's only really two reasons why you give. Well, maybe three. There's really three reasons why you give to a campaign. One is because the person is a friend or family, right? So you make the donation check. The second one is, you know, because you're a staunch party member. And so you just give the money. But the third, and probably the reason that 90 plus percent of the people donate, it's for political connection. 
It's all self. It's all self-interest. It's all self-motivated, and that's where dark money, you know, has a problem too. Which is dark money, servants of the damned. It's all the same thing, just different, just packaged in a different name. Well, good for you on the book, David. Um, you know, I certainly recommend you know it as a read. That's certainly for sure. Um, wish you obviously, you know, all the best with the book. Um, I know it's a pain in the ass, these launches and so on. You know, I'm working overtime with with mine that comes out next month. But I certainly recommend Servants of the Damned, you know, to my followers. That's for sure. Um, You stay safe, my friend. And I hope to have you back on Mea Culpa soon because I think this is a bigger problem than what people realize. And I think you bringing it to the forefront is obviously extremely important. Well, thank you so much for the time. It's been a pleasure talking to you. The same, David. Be well. Okay. Take care. And now for today's mea culpa. There was something trending last week about people cooking chicken in NyQuil. NyQuil, for those who are unfamiliar, is a bluish-colored, minty-flavored liquid called medicine. Chicken is chicken. NyQuil and chicken should never meet. Whether or not it's a hoax, I don't give a shit. Nobody should ever try it for any reason whatsoever. But the bigger question is, where are we going with this foolishness, folks? Because it seems like we're not just losing the fight against stupidity, we're getting our asses handed to us over and over again. I hate that P.T. Barnum might have been right. No one ever went broke underestimating the intelligence of the American public. Now, stupid is one thing, but once you add cruelty, it becomes a poison. Cruelty plus stupidity equals NyQuil chicken. DeSantis taking immigrants who have already been persecuted and then using their plight for political gains just seems to be the Republican way. It's stupid and it's fucking cruel. Now I look at Herschel Walker in Georgia and I feel like he's also a victim of the GOP. He's arguably their worst candidate running. Now, whether or not Walker knows that the Republicans are exploiting him is unclear. But he himself has told us he'd do his best, but he's not that smart. He's told us he has multiple personalities and serious anger issues. I mean, seriously? What the fuck? So we should believe him. There are other issues that under normal circumstances would make Walker completely fucking ineligible to run for office. But these aren't normal times. Republicans and Trump, who handpicked Walker to run for the Senate, they don't care. They don't give a shit. He's a black celebrity with a nice smile, and they're hoping that all it will take to beat the brilliant incumbent Raphael Warnock is Walker. I mean, sad to say, but Walker is a puppet. Who wins or loses will never govern, but you better know he'll be left holding the bag when his masters need a scapegoat. Now, interestingly enough, Warnock has expressed concern for his opponent too. He knows what time it is, but he's a leader who sees a path forward for Georgia. When Warnock wins this race, and I certainly pray that he does, he will be winning for Walker too. The Walker might not see it that way. I mean, not yet anyway. Warnock has an excellent record in Congress and no personal or professional baggage. Yet, the two men are running neck and neck in the polls. 
Now someone has to fucking tell me, how is that even possible? Because too many white Republicans in Georgia don't like black people that they can't manipulate. Both Walker and Warnock came from difficult backgrounds. Warnock grew up one of 11 kids in a Savannah public housing project. He then graduated cum laude from Morehouse College, earned his doctorate in theology, and became a senior pastor at the famous Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, where Martin Luther King used to preach. He's a middle-left Democrat that fought hard for education, for health care, and voters' rights. Now, Walker is a Hall of Fame football player beloved in Georgia, and also a former contestant on Celebrity Apprentice, but for the last four decades, his life has been one giant long-ass scandal. And regardless of the facts, too many people will vote for a party rather than an individual. They'll go with the NyQuil chicken because it's trending. So wake the fuck up, Georgia, and keep Raphael Warnock working for you. I can say honestly, he really is the best man for the job. And thanks for listening. Mea Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch, and LSJ Media, written by Jimmy Jelinek and Paula Killen. Our editor and managing producer is Lisa Orkin. Our executive producers are Jared Gustat, Jimmy Jelinek, and myself, Michael Cohen, along with Phil Alberstadt. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is still winning the war on the state and local level. Maya Culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. And let's face it, we all want Trump, Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. And folks, I promise you, it's coming. So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Mea culpa, nothing but the truth.